You know, today we continue this sermon series down by the riverside. And we're going to be talking about what it means to lay down our sword and shield in light of what it means to pick up our civil liberties and what it means specifically for Christians uh, in our country to be people who are committed to civil liberties for all people. You know, it, um, it's a time of grief and yet it's a time of celebration in our country as we, we remember uh, Representative John Lewis and, and what he did for civil rights and civil liberties. We're going to be hearing a lot more about that in coming days, I'm sure. You know, last night I felt led in our uh, Vespers Prayer Friends group that meets every night about 9 o'clock. You're welcome to join us. But we prayed for uh, John Lewis's family and John Lewis's friends. But we also prayed for his colleagues in Congress. Uh, we prayed for our president and the cabinet. We prayed for the leaders of our country uh, who will be, will be focused on throughout this week as we lift up John Lewis's life. Uh, we pray for our country. And we pray that God will continue to direct us in a way that leads to liberty and justice for all. As I was driving to church this morning, a sister church just up the road had on their marquee, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I thought, that's it. You can't have uh, the kind of liberties that we're talking about this morning, uh, save but have the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, we Christians, just as we've been talking about in this sermon series, are called to uh, a, a higher understanding of liberty, perhaps. Uh, 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 an understanding of liberty that's based on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His ministry and His call upon our lives and the Holy Spirit's work within us to move us on to being perfected in love. And we might say joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. I have a definition this morning as to what we mean when we talk about civil liberties. Civil liberties are guarantees and freedoms that democratic governments commit not to abridge or dis diminish, either by legislation or judicial interpretation without due process. Civil liberties may uh, include the freedom of conscience, freedom of press, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, the right to security and liberty, freedom of speech, the right uh, to privacy, the right to equal treatment under the law and due process, the right to a fair trial, and, and the right to life. There, there, there's free, uh, these liberties, these civil liberties, these freedoms that we enjoy are very precious to us. And they're underscored by our faith. Of course, in our country, we were founded on rights and liberties and freedoms. You know, a friend of mine just this past week, as we were studying this scripture text today that I'm going to say a little bit more about in just a moment, Psalm 137. This friend said that he remembered his high school civics teacher saying, We have the civil liberty to swing our arms, but if we swing them to hit someone in the nose, that is not a freedom. 
I, I get that, don't you? You know, we have a freedom to drive a car, don't we? But uh, decades ago, uh, we decided that that freedom to drive a car would also mean that we would give up a freedom to drive without a seatbelt on. And then it became not only law, but uh, fine if you don't have your seatbelt on. And some people consider that a violation of civil liberties. But let me tell you something. I'm sure that uh, insurance costs and the driving up of insurance costs when, when we're injured more or, or even killed more in this country, when we don't have seatbelts on, I'm sure that had something to do with our giving up of that freedom of driving unseatbelted. You know, it's a good example for Christians to understand that our individual freedoms are limited by a respect for others and their liberties. Can anyone remember what it was like to go through an airport before 9-11? I like this commercial. It looks like Uncle Sam there, doesn't it? Please remove any remaining civil liberties and place them in the tray, sir. And you know, sometimes I know we're annoyed when it seems like we have to undress, don't we, to get on a plane or to get through security. But, but we know why we have to do that, don't we? It's for the protection, not only of ourselves, but of others. For when we get on a plane, we get a, on a plane usually with a, a couple of hundred of our, um, our closest friends, we don't know anybody hardly on the plane. We don't even know the pilot. We're putting ourselves in, um, uh, you know, in the lives of others at risk if we don't give up this piece of liberty and pass through the security line as we all are required to these days. And, and today, you know, there's a lot of discussion about masks. I've got mine right here close by, a beautiful mask. June Gunsey made this for me. It says amazing grace on it. I love it. But, but we wear masks today, and some people are offended that they have to wear masks. But let's think about this in, in light of our Christian call. A mask protects others from us. And we've come to find out it also protects us from others. And, and so when a store requires that we have a mask to come in, it's is it our place to criticize the store or is it our place to understand this is really about others and it's about us giving up a little bit of our freedom so at this time in our history in this country dealing with a pandemic we can understand that's a small sacrifice you know the scripture that we read today I'll be honest I've never preached on Psalm 137 it's a tough passage and it came at a very tough time In 587 BC the nation of Israel was overthrown and the city of Jerusalem was literally leveled and the people of Israel were taken into bondage in Babylonia and the survivors of this brutality and the death march found themselves in captivity in a foreign land, cut off from their holy city, cut off from their heritage, their hopes, their roots uh, seemed to be gone. And most importantly of all, the temple that was the center of their faith had been literally destroyed. No longer able to offer their worship around the Ark of the Covenant that had disappeared, perhaps been de destroyed, unable to offer sacrifices on the altar. They literally felt 
cut off from God. Wow. Even worse, their captors made fun of them. They mocked them. They mocked their religious practices. Their, uh, their, their, they mimicked their melodies. They, they laughed at their holy hymns. And, and so all of this goes into this text today. And we, we know why it's so raw. It's because that it's coming from a place of deep hurt from the people of God. They, they were mocked. And, and, and the scripture says, sing us one of those songs of Zion. <laughs> they were mocked. And no wonder they asked, how? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? In the midst of such devastation and loss and overwhelming tragedy. How can we do that? You know, sometimes I think that we, we feel like uh, that we're in a foreign land. It doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel right. And, 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 yet, and yet maybe we have been those who, who say, you know, it's not easy to sing a song in a conflicted culture. It's not easy to lift up the values of God's kingdom in a, in a society that seemingly mocks God's values. It's not easy to sing the Lord's song in what often feels like a foreign land. So the question this morning is, what is the song? What is the song that we as Christians are called to sing? This song of liberty, this song of freedom, this song that bases um, all that we believe on the Spirit of the Lord is. And where the Spirit of the Lord, there is liberty. God's liberty song that we as Christians are called to sing is first a song of peace, even in a world of violence. And we sing, going to lay down my sword and shield. Going to lay down my sword. The Babylon captivity was neither the first nor the last of a seemingly endless history of conflict and conquest and violence and retribution in the land that we call holy. Our Bible comes to us. From that land we call holy. And this book is full of examples of that which is unholy. And calls us as the people of God, the children of God, to respond to a world that oftentimes is full of violence. How do we bring the liberty and the freedom of peace in such a world as this? You know, the ancient saga of the politic of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth only, uh, only ends up with everyone uh, being blind and toothless, right? Jesus had a different approach. As this psalm that we read reflects the people's grief, you can also feel the all-too-familiar tug that, that, that moves us toward grief turning into anger. And anger producing resentment. And, and reduce, in resentment uh, calling for retribution. And retribution begetting violence. You know, it has that way of spiraling down and moving us further and further and further away from God's intention of liberty and freedom for all. 
And the cycle of violence leads to that part of the psalm that we don't like to read in church. In fact, um, we'd leave it out if we could, but it's there and we need to own it. It's that part that says, O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall we be who pays you back for what you have done to us. And then the worst part, happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That scripture is coming from a place of deep hurt. It's coming from that place of spiraling down further and further and further from God's will. And it's in our Holy Bible. Let's not be so quick to, um, to judge the Quran as being uh, a, a, a book of violence when uh, our Holy Bible is full of this kind of raw stuff. It's the reflection of who we can be at our worst as humans. And let me tell you something. Dashing the children against the rocks, that is a violation of God's liberty. You know, we human creatures invariably turn to the ways of retaliation rather than the paths that lead to peace. And find ways to justify our actions, sometimes even using Scripture. We only have to mention these words and we know exactly what I'm talking about. The Hutus and the Tutsis. The Israelis and the Palestinians. The Muslims and the Christians. The, the Kurds and the Turks. The Protestants and the Catholics. The pro-life and the pro-choice divisions 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 that seems to be what we know and jesus had the gall to say love your enemies pray for those who persecute you you know against this backdrop of this age-old cycle of violence away from peace. The Bible holds out a vision of peace, a vision of shalom, God's vision, God's kingdom of justice, wholeness and holiness, brotherhood, sisterhood, and peace. In Hebrew, the word for peace, shalom, is never just the absence of violence, war, or trouble. That's not it. I'm remembering what John Lewis used to say about um, making good trouble. Good trouble. Shalom is not uh, uh, about the, the, the absence of that. Gary Holler in his book, Searching for Shalom, said this. Shalom means the presence of justice. Shalom is the active presence of God resulting in wholeness of life. It is life as God intends where God's presence is the bedrock of well-being and peace. You see, shalom is active. Shalom involves action. It's not docile. It's not that kind of peace. It's a very active, even a good trouble. I'm going to lay down 
My sword and shield down by the riverside is a vision of God's shalom and calls us to sing a different song, to live out of a new set of values, to seek peace and fulfillment for all of God's people, not just for ourselves. That's God's liberty. To proclaim liberty and justice for all, not just for those in our nation, that's God's liberty. And to ask God to bless not just America, but all of God's people, and to do the hard work of building bridges instead of barriers, uniting, not dividing, creating a community which respects the worth of every person, that's God's liberty, the work that we're called to. You know, our symbols as citizens of the United States and of our faith speak to our sacred values, don't they? The Statue of Liberty. She doesn't lift up a fist. She she holds up a torch, a lamp, a light. And, And the Liberty Bell didn't ring for revenge Rather, it rings for freedom and justice for all. And the ground at the cross is level, and all of us are on equal footing there. And the one who died there called us to a different kind of freedom, a different kind of liberty that has a profound other's orientation, right? Jesus died for the world so that we could have accentuated his love in our hearts and in our actions of God's liberty and freedom. You know, the ringing of that bell, the bell of the cross, is the sound of liberty and freedom, not revenge. Not revenge. You know, oftentimes revenge takes us as um, a person and takes us as a people to a place to seek retaliation, only leading to deeper and deeper problems. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, isn't it? But think about what happened after 9-11 when our country was attacked. So many were killed, innocent people killed. As a country, it was hard for us to pray for our enemies then. It was hard for us to clearly identify them then. We entered war with a country we identified as an enemy. We thought they had stockpiles of nuclear weapons, and we thought that they were in some way responsible for 9-11. The next thing you know, we're in a war with Iraq and the neighboring country, Afghanistan, and nearly two decades later, and many dead on our side and the sides of others. We're still in that war. It's led to the rise of more terrorist groups and it's destabilized things in such a way. Sometimes our retaliation can lead to even more destruction and get completely out of control. We must be people who work for peace and God's shalom. 
the Statue of Liberty as she raises her lamp, not her fist, causes us to embrace the greatest values this country was founded on. The Judeo-Christian faith, namely a, a, a radical hospitality of caring for others, namely the stranger. Many of us know that our foremothers and forefathers came right through the gates that were opened by Lady Liberty herself. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuge of your teeming shores. Send these, the hopeless, tempest toss to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's the song which needs to be sung, the song which we are called through our values as Christians to make sure that hospitality, which is the number one Judeo-Christian responsibility, hospitality, be offered to the stranger. You know, out of the incomprehensible conflict and the deadliest of, the, of, of wars in our nation's history, the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln desired to bring the nation together. He was a president with a cause after the war to make sure there was healing and, and to try to bring that healing in the midst of our worst division as a country. I read this past week on April the 9th, 19, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse. And two nights, like two nights later, that'd be April the 11th, 19, 1865, a crowd of people gathered at the White House to serenade President Lincoln. And they asked the president, they asked if there was anything that they would like for him to sing after they had sung some of their own choices, uh, patriotic, of course. Lincoln said, yes, there is. There's one more song I'd like for you to sing. Would you please sing Dixie? Would you sing Dixie? They were stunned. President Lincoln, the president of the United States of America, wants us to sing Dixie, the theme song of the Confederacy. Why? And Lincoln replied, because we are all one in the Union, not the North and the South, not Yankee and Rebel, not winners and losers, but one people. The Union has prevailed, and I want you to sing Dixie. And they did. And our nation has been working to heal those wounds for all of these years. And we're still working. And it's important work. It's the work of God's liberty. 
You know, the lyrics of Dixie were written by Daniel Decatur Emmett in 1859, before the Civil War. And it was written for a New York show. It was written to tell the story of of a freed black slave who moved north and wanted so much to return to the plantation of his birth. And ironically, during the American Civil War, Dixie was adopted as the unofficial theme song of the Confederacy. And new versions appeared during wartime that were more explicitly tying the song to the time of the war. This song that was meant to be a a love song for a homeland became a rallying cry for war. You know, we're called to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, a song of peace in a world of violence. And also, God's liberty song that we as Christians are called to sing is a song of hope in a world of fear. Friends, the world has enough fear in it for us not to be those who stir fear up. We are called to sing a song of hope in a world of fear. And if you're singing a song of fear, then you're singing the wrong song. It's time for us to sing about God's liberties, and that's a song of hope. We sing, going to lay down my sword and shield. We're going to lay down our defensiveness. And we're going to trust God for protection. We're going to trust the people of God to do the right thing and to uplift hope in the midst of all the fear that can sometimes run rampant. As the church, the body of Christ, we are called to sing a song of hope grounded in the presence of of the risen Lord and the confidence of God's steadfast love. To be the people of God means to hold on to the hope that one day we will, we'll all overcome. We'll all be working and living in God's understanding of liberty. We'll all be singing that song, going to lay down my sword and shield because we're singing the song of God, even if it feels like it's in a foreign land. One day we'll walk hand in hand, we hope. One day we'll all be free, we hope. And that we'll live in peace, one with another, not just in this country, but throughout the world. We hope. And if we don't sing that song of hope, who's going to sing it? If we who are called to sing it don't sing it, then how will the world ever change? Now, I grew up in uh, the time of of the gospel songs and old revivals, even even camp meetings. Um, Not the older version of camp meetings, but the mimicking version of camp meetings. And we sang these old songs from time to time. And um, a tune that, that I've been humming the last few days says, I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine. 
for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry o'er the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him, for he knows what is ahead. And many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. I know who holds my hand. We are called to live in hope. To live out the confidence to the eternal grace of our living God. Friends, we as Christians working for God's liberty in our world, sing a song of hope in a world too driven by fear. And finally, God's liberty song that we as Christians are called to sing is a song of love in a world too often driven by hate. And we sing, going to lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside of God's river of love in Jesus Christ who said, love one another. Love your neighbors. You love yourself. Love as I have loved you. Hey, love your enemy. And he said it. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, All your neighbors as you love yourself. Even your enemy neighbors as you love yourself. The way we as Christians are to approach all of our liberties is to sing the song of self-giving love. Love for others. And that's like singing the Lord's song in a foreign land sometimes. But that song never gets old. Sing a song of love in a world And sing it louder than the hate that presents itself. That's what the psalmist learned. Sometimes all you have is a song. And if it's the Lord's song of peace and hope and love, it's enough. It's enough. Amen.